This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we've got a bunch of Boeing-related news, some other news. So first, we'll start with Emirates. Uh, sending a warning to Boeing that it might refuse their 777X shipment if it doesn't meet uh, commitments. We'll talk about Airbus and some of their helicopter market. Um, in our engineering segment today, we'll talk a little bit more about the grounding issue, the electrical issues that Boeing's had, and how just the complex uh, fastening, riveting, um, just the order of operations in manufacturing played a role in that. And we'll also talk about sustainable jet fuels and a potential tax credit uh, that's coming out in potential legislation. Lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk a little bit about Jaunt Air Mobility as they're trying to get a, uh, well, they have a partnership now with CAE to accelerate design of a flight simulator. And we'll talk about the implications for Arion shutting down. Of course, Arion is not an EVTOL, but a supersonic jet company, now defunct. But this will certainly send ripples throughout a lot of these, uh, throughout the industry as a lot of these other startup companies, which were well-funded like Arion, maybe wonder if they're next. So Alan, let's start here with um, with Emirates. So they warned Boeing that they were fused 777X jets if um, they fall short of contractual performance commitments. Is this a big deal or is this pretty sort of normal par for the course? It's normal if you're inside company to company, but it's unusual to see that get into the press. So somebody is getting upset Mm -hmm. and, and those using the press as a leverage point, uh, because the aircraft manufacturer doesn't want to be in the press about that stuff and they don't want it to spread that maybe their performance numbers are not being met. And on the triple seven, there's been a lot of conjecture about the performance of the power plants. Like what, kind of thrust we got, what kind of fuel burn we have, because that's critical to the operation of any airline or freighter company for that matter, of how much fuel we're going to burn with X kind of load in it and what's the range and all those kind of things. And you can imagine if you're the analyst at the airline company and you're trying to put that into your database and figure out what the cost of an airline ticket is or what kind of profitability this airplane is going to be and what routes you can fly it on, you have nothing to base that on. You just have no mm-hmm. data without having that. It's like the, the most crucial piece of data of all of it is uh, engine performance. So <laughs> you can get uh, a lot of back and forth between buyers and producers of aircraft in, in that performance category definition uh, because it, it, it makes a big difference. So if you don't have any numbers and Boeing's not going to give you the numbers, then what's your what are you going to do? The only threat you can make is like, well, I'm not going to buy it until you give me the numbers. <laughs> that's, that's it. That's it. Uh, uh, but even worse is that I'll go to the press and tell them that you're not producing numbers. So that every airline across the world knows that you're not producing numbers, which is bad. You know, No one wins in that situation. Yeah. So that, that's where they're at right now. And I, I'm surprised that Boeing's letting that go on without providing some... They have to know, right? 
They have to know by yeah, now. You think so? Right. Which is what everybody's saying is, well, you've flown the aircraft. You have to know. You, you must be getting numbers on the engine performance. Or is it? Well, why can't we see it? Is it? it, it so you're on any sort of, like if you're buying a car and it doesn't tell you, I mean, horsepower it is or what it's pound of torque is don't you kind of wonder like what are you hiding that i mean is, <laughs> what's wrong yeah. with this car <laughs> mm-hmm. when you worry about that I mean, I... the only reason you hide numbers yeah. yeah the only reason you don't publish numbers if you're afraid they don't live up right so you got two options you can lie about it or not or withhold it and i guess boeing's deciding just to withhold it for now because it must not be what they expect it to be right and boeing on the honesty scale is being pressed to be honest about everything after the 737 issues and the max. Yeah. So it, probably the best option is to say nothing and say it's coming. But you would think that there'd got to be a lot of phone calls going back and forth between now air, airlines and the 777 staff to get that corrected. It's a weird, weird combative situation so early in a program. Yeah. Well, moving on, uh, let's talk a little bit about Airbus. So Airbus corporate helicopters, they now have a 70% share, it's reporting from AIN online, of the yachting market, which um, they talk about how this is a it's a challenging market, but one that's been pretty resilient to the pandemic, which sure. makes sense, right? <laughs> so if you are wealthy enough to own a yacht that you can land a helicopter on, you probably weren't hurt too badly right. <laughs> from the pandemic. Right. And well, and of course, you know, these may be business owners that may have taken a large hit or maybe right. had to shutter a business. But I think the idea is that with the stock market being what it was, a lot of you know a lot of wealthy people put money in when it was down and made a boatload of money thereafter so <laughs> literally um, a boatload yeah, yeah. <laughs> well and, and it's it's interesting this article talks about you know ultra wealthy people wanting to sneak away to their yacht and quarantine and yeah you know be away from big crowds even as life is resuming or starting to resume as normal exactly um but is does this strike you as a pretty resilient market i mean do you feel like the luxury market in general is is relatively resilient to these kind of uh these kind of well disruptions it, it is it tends to be well, you know, the only time you see real trouble is on economic collapse collapses like the 2008 in the u.s or across the world actually uh where sort of large yacht sales just collapsed uh, and then the helicopter market went with that. Everything kind of went with that on the on the housing market side. So you, you can you can uh, I think on some level trace aircraft sales with other sort of luxury item sales. Yeah, big boats being another one of those items. So big boat sales are doing well. Airplane sales tend to be doing well. And it's it's funny that Airbus called out like we're the yacht company, we're the yacht helicopter company. We we went seventy seven out of ten. Uh, uh, yacht aircraft, <laughs> that's us. So you're the one to come. We're, we're the one that has the best aircraft to land on your yacht, which is a weird thing to think about because when we were talking about the use of helicopters, like where are they being used right now? Well, where's a great place to sell the helicopters with someone who has cash, who has cash, and somebody with a yacht has cash. So that's a great place to sell a helicopter versus in a more competitive market, like on a training market or an oil rig market, uh, those tend to be a little more cost conscientious, so to speak. <laughs> so I'm sure, I'm sure that the yacht helicopter market is a sweet profit margin market, and you want to live in there if you can. I, yeah. th- but isn't it just a just a little bit 
odd and, and the way that Airbus sort of constructed that um, argument like it, it's it's the argument of well we're the leader in that space so everybody else doesn't matter you should always come to us <laughs> which is a great sales argument by the way like if you don't know anything about helicopters mm-hmm. and you see that you're like well, well I guess I call Airbus since they have 70% of the sales here I'll call Airbus because they know what they're talking about yeah it's a, it's a great marketing tool to to pull that one off it, but from a helicopter yeah, rich get richer well sort of i mean sort of right if someone buys a helicopter there's a lot of people making that helicopter so you're taking that money and putting a lot of people to work which is super awesome i think the the question and this ties into the airbus kind of stepping away from the VTOL market for a while and saying it's not ready yet one of the VTOL markets is going to be landing on your yacht come on mm-hmm. has to for be sure. right yeah for so sure. Airbus is saying that those aircraft are not ready for that yet. It's not ready for that. It's not ready for the for the big time. We're going to be okay making helicopters for the next couple of years at least. Well, and last piece of news today, and of course this is tied to the Ariane collapse, GE Aviation is no longer working on the Infinity. Um, so obviously they're still going to be involved with the NASA X-59, right. which is the supersonic uh, tech demonstrator. Right. Um, but they're, you know, stopping plans here because the Infinity was the power plant for the AS2 business jet. Right. Um, obviously, you know, all these systems go with it. But I mean, I think the bigger point here is that when a company, especially an aircraft company, which has lots and lots of vendors and, um, you know, other companies helping to put the plane together, it's it's a big ripple effect, is it not? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, anytime an aircraft program shutters, you obviously lose all the aircraft manufacturing, but you also lose on the engine side. Everything tends to stop there too, because a lot of engines are directly manufactured for a particular model of aircraft. Forget if it's supersonic or not, it doesn't really make that much difference. Every aircraft has a slightly modded engine for its particular application. So it's a huge uh, downwards chain of businesses losing future revenue, right? So everybody loses in this situation. So Ariane loses, obviously all the employees lose, all the suppliers lose, including GE in this case, all, all the GE employees that would have been supporting that program have to find something else to work on now. It just cascades and it's almost immediate. And haven't been involved in that a couple of times over my aviation career. When a stop order is put out for an airplane, they ain't kidding. It's stopping today. That's it. Stop work, stop billing. We're not going to pay any more bills associated with this program. It is over. It isn't like there's a slow decline at some sort of bankruptcy sort of thing. It is like we don't have any more cash. Boom, stop. And it's not like that in a lot of other businesses, but that in aviation, it is. So you can literally take a 10,000 person, 30,000 person organization and just tell everybody to go home. Boom. That's big on a local economy. It just is. When you have those kind of numbers stopping work in any particular project, it, it is a big impact locally and nationally. Yeah, that's just like you go to the grocery store and forget your purse. And it's like, <laughs> well, you got to leave it. Got to go home. Just leave, leave it here. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Back on the yeah. shelves. Well, yeah, it's like going to the grocery store. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, forgetting something, going back in, the door's closed. Like, it's just like that. Like, you're not coming back in. It's We're done. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> it is like that. And 
it, you don't think of it that way. And, it, and if, unless you've been in that situation, you don't really realize that's how abrupt it is. It's not like when they have layoff in Detroit, they tend to be longer 60 day, 90 day kind of events. And they, there's all notices and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't go that way in aviation typically. All right, moving on to our engineering segment. First, let's talk uh, more about Boeing, the 737 MAX incident with their electrical grounding problem. So interesting memo um, sent out, well, reported on by the Seattle Times, but basically Boeing has cautioned their engineers about changes to manufacturing steps just to make sure that they're all aware of just little things that can make a big difference, which apparently was the, the issue here. Um, so Alan, it sounds like they used to rivet a hole and the electrical connection created by the rivet fasteners, um, was different structurally and electrically than the replacement fasteners. They found a faster process. I mean, that was like a little cheaper, a little faster and didn't have as good of an electrical bond or grounding as, uh, as the rivets. So that seemed like that was kind of what's reporting and they're warning, warning their engineers to be, you know, mindful of that. Oh, sure. Uh, changes in fastener types in particular or fastener diameters, which doesn't seem like to be all that much difference, like slight changes, like a thousandth or two changes in diameters of fasteners can have big effects on electrical connections being made. And uh, the note from Boeing basically says, be careful when from going from engineering drawing to manufacturing actually on the line that everybody's trying to optimize everything about an aircraft in terms of how much it costs to make part. So if you can reduce the part count, if you can reduce the amount of labor it takes to install it or the time it takes to, to assemble a piece, you're going to do it. And in that translation, sometimes you forget the little detail things like electrical grounding and bonding. It gets, you're, you're still fastening things together. Just put, you're basically fastening two pieces of metal together, but how you fasten it and, and all the steps it takes to assemble those two things is critical to the outcome. And unless you are um, put some sort of pass fail criteria on electrical bonding everywhere and you're measuring all that stuff, you won't catch it. So there's a lot of people involved from the design phase of creating a drawing, which defines what this installation looked like, to a person on the manufacturing floor assembling it and installing it in an airplane. There's, there's just a whole breadth of people between those two things. So in there, is where the details matter. And if you don't translate the engineering drawing or the engineering drawing doesn't have sufficient detail, everybody else down the chain can get lost and meander off where the pathway that, that the engineer thought they were gonna be on. And then you gotta have different product at the end. And so unless the engineer physically goes down to the line and checks once in a while, which is what I prefer to do, is just actually see if this thing's actually installed the way that I intended to install it because, um, I know what it should look like, then then you can get a different result. And I uh, and at a large company like Boeing, it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable. You, it, you don't want it, but it's really hard to control that situation when you have so many people. It just is. Uh, and we saw it with the Max, and we're gonna we saw it with this bonding issue. You see it, and air, all aircraft companies have that similar issue. It's a constant battle of design intent. And what's being built and are they are they aligning with one another yeah that makes sense and like you said so many people so many complex processes they get changed last minute and doesn't seem like it's a big deal no one really notices and then suddenly they find a problem later so right um 
Right, there's a lot of assumptions that are made on an airplane, right? Especially an aluminum airplane. Uh, things come for or taken for granted because they usually <laughs> aluminum airplane. In terms of my area of expertise, which is lightning protection, aluminum airplanes are easy because once everything's kind of connected together inherently, um, structurally, uh, uh, that also usually means it's inherently connected together electrically. Uh, but because processes and uh, corrosion protection and everything is much better than it used to be. Things we would take for granted in terms of if I put a couple of rivets in this part, it should be fine electrically. It isn't it's not anymore uh, <laughs> for a variety of reasons, mostly because coding so much better. So I, I I think putting out a memo is like the the least you can do, and I, I think you have to put the memo out to say, hey, everybody, take a take a deep breath, make sure your your designs are being implemented properly. But it goes deeper than that, that you need to sometimes kick the engineers out of their seats and make them go down the line and take a look at what's actually coming down the line. So moving on to our second here, uh, second item here on the engineering segment. So there's new legislation introduced by three Democrats, uh, the Sustainable Skies Act, which is aimed at reducing you know, emissions, and it would establish a $1.50 per gallon tax credit for sustainable airline fuels, aviation fuels, and then an additional penny for every percentage above 50% um, reduction in emissions. And so the, and the initial $1.50 tax credit is on the assumption that that'll save 50% of the emissions for mm -hmm. over typical jet fuel. Um, but Alan, you're skeptical of this. I think the difference between the cost of the alternative fuels is more than the buck 50 you're going to save in a credit. And until the synthetic fuels can lower the cost down significantly, I think you're going to have big issues with it. So, the, and that that's the big that's the big problem, right? Anything you're trying to create to turn into a fuel takes a lot of energy to turn it into that fuel, which then makes it more expensive versus pumping it out of the ground, refining a little bit, and sticking it in an airplane wing. Um, there's just a lot more steps, a lot more energy, a lot more people involved in making synthetics just is. So that means the cost is going to be higher. So if you're the aircraft operator, do you really want that? Maybe. Maybe that'll pay off in terms of better PR or something. But the buck 50 doesn't make a sense yeah. economically right now. I think all the airlines will pass. <laughs> it's like, no, I don't care. It's not, it's not making it financially worthy to me. And it, don't think that there's not a, a group of accountants in every airline across the United States if, and then basically across the world doing the same thing, looking at the cost of fuel. It's one of the main drivers into the profitability. They're not going to double the fuel costs. No way. They're just not going to do it because their yeah. price, pricing is going to have to increase by 20 30% versus their competitor. They're just not going to do it. So, you know, I think there's, I think, as we've talked about many times before, the, 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 Aircraft industry has done a really good job on reducing fuel and being much more efficient than they were 10 years ago, definitely more than 50 years ago, for sure. Um, do we need this? I doubt it. I doubt it. It's like a similar thing that happened in Massachusetts recently where they had a legislation, legislature um, had a bill that was going to charge a $1,000 landing fee to every aircraft, private aircraft that landed in Massachusetts. A thousand bucks. So if I have my Piper or whatever, uh, Seneca or whatever, and I land at my local uh, airport as a thousand bucks, well, it's just no one's going to do that. Uh, no one's going to land in Massachusetts. Just won't. They'll drive. Uh, 
They'll land in New Hampshire or Vermont and drive over. That's crazy. There's an econ- yeah. there's an economics to it that has to make sense. And the point of the the point of the tax was to punish people who had who were flying around luck to quote punish people who are flying around in luxury aircraft. Why are we using taxation to punish people? That that doesn't jive. Uh, that's not what taxation is for, right? Um, mm-hmm. So you, you kind of feel like the same thing. Like this little credit is a way to sort of punish people from flying on airplanes. And as we've talked about many times before, aircraft are the most one of the most efficient and safest modes of transportation ever on the planet. Do we want to tinker with that? Not a lot, I don't think. Yearly, it's about 26 billion gallons of jet A fuel consumed yeah. by the airline industry yeah. and prices for, you know, standard jet A somewhere between the mid threes per gallon to like the low fives right mm-hmm. now. So you're saying that it's it's finding exact pricing on these synthetic fuels is difficult, but right. somewhere double or more That's why they're blending them. Um, for these syn- syn- synthetic right. fuel, fuels. So then they're blending them. To yeah, lower the cost down. It's not going to be as effective. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, and the synthetic fuels don't have but, much energy density. So for cubic whatever, gallon of whatever, it's less energy and in, in contained in it. So you need more fuel to go f- further, which means more weight to go further. There's a cost benefit So it could to be it. even just be a push. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right. that's, it, seems, it does seem really problematic. And you wonder if the lawmakers knew this when they released this legislation. Like, did, I mean, you would assume that all these numbers kind of got run by them, just where it's like, hey, this probably isn't going to work very well mm. given the current prices and the fact that if it's not mandatory if you happen to ever meet a legislator they got a lot on their plate already because they're dealing with a variety of issues and if you ever met legislator staffs in congress they're not really experts in anything in particular and they're not don't tend to be very old so it isn't like they have a lot of experience in the aviation field either um, so mm-hmm. these things tend to be more promotional efforts than they are effective legislation in terms of driving a industry somewhere. And aviation always tends to push back because they have the data. United Airlines has the data on synthetic fuels. They do. And, you know, Delta does too, right? So they know. They know. If you want to bring them from the Congress and talk about the alternatives, awesome. But I don't, that has, to my knowledge, that hasn't happened. There's been a lot of, uh, push inside the FAA and Europeans to look at alternative fuels. That's awesome. But the economics still isn't there. Well, and maybe it's something where you just start to introduce this now, assuming that it's not going to go anywhere just to start like that ball rolling to get the airline industry thinking about it and, and people, you know, other legislators signing off on it. And then maybe 10 years down the road, when prices are closer, it starts to matter. You know, it could just be like, Hey, let's just, do this thing, even though it won't do, it won't affect much change, just so that maybe it starts to affect change in the future. Maybe it, it could be something like that. You never know. Well, I well know. Here, here's the thing, Dan. I think the a lot of people who whose job is it every day to look at how to make an airline much more efficient than it was the day before. There are thousands of people doing that every single day, and I, I would rely upon their expertise more than someone in Congress. But I also think on a bigger picture scale is the Elon Musk effort, which is going on now on carbon capture, a better alternative than changing every airplane? Maybe, maybe, maybe that's a better mm-hmm. solution. And, and 
maybe that maybe that's ultimately the end solution is the carbon capture method because we really haven't examined that all too much. But it may be the 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 way that all this sort of mitigates itself is that we don't re-engineer every industry, every piece of <laughs> transportation in the world versus come up with ways to sort of mitigate it on a, on a global scale. Don't know. I don't know if there's a good answer for it, but at least I'm, I'm yeah. at least glad that someone is looking at alternatives. And if that's Musk mm -hmm. and some others, great. I'm surprised that um, some of the European countries and even the United States haven't looked at it from a national sense. Uh, it's just going to take time. Well, all these efforts, it's so it's so complex as far yeah. as reducing overall. Like it, you have to. Is it a short-term, smaller thing you're aimed at reducing, or is it a larger thing? I was reading this book called Upstream by uh, Chip Heath, mm. and an example he uses in the book is uh, plastic grocery bags. So these really thin, you know, the, the standard thin grocery bag you yep. get for, you know, now you have to pay five cents for it here in the District of Columbia. But, you know, these uh, plastic bags obviously end up everywhere, sure. right? They're just wafer thin. and sure. So... If you think, okay, let's try to reduce the amount of plastic bags, which is in the billions used every year. Sure. What if we go to paper bags, which are obviously more environmentally friendly? Well, they're significantly heavier. Right. Um, you, and they essentially ran the numbers on the thin, typical grocery bags versus the paper bags versus uh, like the thicker, you know, reusable ones. They basically said you had to use a paper bag at least three times for it to break even wow. for the whole scope of like uh, carbon emissions and like this whole balance. I can't remember the exact measure they were talking about, but for it to be actually be better for the planet, you had to use a paper bag three times at least, and then a reusable bag a hundred times. So really now, okay. You now, now using either one will certainly get less of the thin little paper bags out of the waterways. Right. But it won't reduce like CO2 emissions over the entire planet. So really the, little plastic bags are probably better for the planet unless you're going to use those paper bags three times and you're reusable a hundred times. That's what's really interesting. So you could potentially solve one problem, getting those little bags out of, you know, landfills and waterways, but you wouldn't solve the bigger problem. It would actually make that problem worse. Mm -hmm. So by going to paper or going to only reusable if they're not used enough. So isn't that the, the system versus goal approach to that, right? It's mm -hmm. like we, yeah. we want to put a system in place that reduces overall. I don't really care how we do it, but the, the, the goal approach to reduce it, just to reduce on a, on a number of different levels, right? So you got carbon dioxide emissions. You also have plastic waste issues, right? So if you're trying to mm -hmm. minimize all of them, and they can't have to look at it as a system. And that's what you that's what you just mm -hmm. went through. Like, it's not just that we create this paper yeah. bag, but that we also, it takes more to transport it. And it, 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 yep. right. So all those little variables don't get thrown into an, in, an ordinary individual's thought process because you didn't think of it. I, I wouldn't have thought about the weight of a paper yeah. bag versus a plastic bag. It wouldn't have crossed my mind. It matters. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about that at Trader Joe's. Most of the grocery stores I go to here, uh, like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's have those nice handled uh, paper bags. Um, and I actually wondered that as I was waiting in line, I'm like, they've got to have just a gigantic pallet of these paper bags yes. somewhere in this building. Yeah, like, they do. They, they're not, I mean, they're, they're thick and they're well-made bags mm -hmm. versus those little reams of plastic bags that they, you know, like 
pull one That's off right. of for the typical grocery ones. You could fit a thousand <laughs> of those in the same space that maybe you store 15 of these paper bags. I mean, it really is a big difference when they talk about that's where the shipping costs come in. I mean, right. the big story today, um, well, we'll get to it in a minute. So first let's talk about CAE. So, and this seems like a, a pretty cool step that Jaunt Aircraft, uh, they are, you know, John Air Mobility, they're partnering with CAE to develop a, uh, a flight simulator. So CAE is a, a well-known, well-regarded flight simulator company. And they're, um, you know, moving forward to start this whole process of getting the John Air Mobility uh, aircraft, hopefully certified by 2026. So, I mean, is this a typical, like, is this in 2021, does this seem like the right timing for this step? It is, but a lot of times it's it's handled internally. Uh, they won't an aircraft company won't outsource the sort of the iron bird portion or the simulation portion of an aircraft design. They'll try to keep it in house. Um, but John's making a couple of different moves simultaneously. One is that they're moving from like the New Jersey Philadelphia area up to Canada. That's the first move, and then the the second move is they're, is they're trying to connect with local Canadian companies. Uh, Probably they had some work with Bombardier Aerospace, which is down on its luck right now. And so there's probably a, a <laughs> abundance of aerospace workers that have time to work on things. And so they're trying to grab hold of that. And I think that makes a lot of sense for, for John. Uh, the, when you're trying to create a, a simulator or simulation tools for an aircraft design, it's really important uh, in terms of the final what the final aircraft looks like because there's so many interconnected pieces. You don't really think about an aircraft as like a living, breathing organism, but it is very similar to that. And that first time you turn on this living, breathing organism on a simulated workbench or iron bird type simulation, simulated setup, it rarely works like you intended it to. Right? There's all the little, all the little mm -hmm. details start to matter. And that's where you want to have sim uh, something simulated there and trying to get it, all the bugs worked out because it's easier to do it on a, on a, on a plywood bench versus a three million dollar aircraft out in the hangar, so you try to get those yeah. systems things worked out early. So this this whole thing makes sense. It's just it's just interesting how John is um, bumped up to Canada and, and is starting to utilize all those Canadian aerospace resources, of which there's a bunch. There's all there's, Canada has been a great resource of aerospace talent for a long time. So it's a it's a good. Uh, feeding ground for your new aircraft company to 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 go take advantage of. Uh, and that's a pretty smart move by John. So lastly, and this is I think the big interesting story of the week is is Arion Supersonic shutting down. And of course, we mentioned them in multiple podcasts yeah. over the last twelve months, sure. doing some cool stuff. They've got their cool prototypes. Um, you know, NetJets had a big order with them, and uh, that's obviously going to have to. I mean, not have to wait, but just on hiatus for forever, I guess, until the next supersonic company wants to take on this mm. challenge. But I mean, Alan, does this surprise you that a company like this is suddenly just defunct, out of money, stopping all processes like we're done? Well, it has to do with investment more than it does technology. I think the Boeing was an investor in the company at some level. And I know there was a relationship between Arion and Boeing was going to support on the engineering scale where they had engineers helping helping Arion because Boeing builds supersonic aircraft on the on the fighter side. And so they have a lot of knowledgeable mm -hmm. people who know how to do that. Uh, and 
in this particular case, once Boeing financially got into a little bit of trouble, you, you can't support things outside Boeing, right? You know, the board of directors is never going to allow that to go on. They need to remove those from the books and the liabilities from the books because Boeing's got to continue as a company. So Arion takes the brunt of that. So once that relationship starts to break down because financially one of your partners is in trouble, there's really not a lot to do there. You just really can't do yeah. much. And I know that a couple of things about Arion really stand out. And I always, it sticks in my head as little warning bells at times. The amount of money they were spending to de develop a whole new manufacturing site was really expensive. And the place they were doing it was in Florida, which, you know, it's great weather and has all the advantages of that. Plus, you can fly off the coast and go break the sonic boom off out in the ocean where you need to go do it. And that all makes sense. But the cost of some of those things is so enormous that... It was more than the cost of some aircraft programs. Like I think they said it was going to be three hundred million dollars plus on the manufacturing site, the man just for the buildings and the infrastructure. Well, three hundred million dollars will build you an airplane. Um, those kind of details, you go. Ooh, it needs to be leaner. And just that 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 whole. Uh, Business intuition kicks in and goes, okay, we we, we got to do this leaner. We got to find out. We got to find some existing hangars. We got to set up some office space. It's going to be lean for a while until we get the airplane kind of figured out and we're starting to manufacture stuff. And it's just it's just another one of those uh, things that just doesn't feel right. And I, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's just like you see big cash burns and you don't see a product coming out the end. You know, I don't think how long you can can sustain this. They can't. And boom, here we go. So, you know, I don't fault anybody here. Uh, I think it was just sort of the, when you're building a supersonic aircraft, there's just certain things that have to go along with it so you can attract people into it as investors and buyers of it. And so you're playing at sort of this uh, Lamborghini, Ferrari kind of environment, but you need to be building Chevy kind of factories that's the difference and uh it hurts it really hurts because i thought this was a was, was a time where the supersonic aircraft and a, a sort of a business commercial scale could come back and then now the only real player in it is boom right and boom is airbus um essentially so there's <laughs> you know it's a huge risk supersonic is always a huge risk I, I just don't know if we're going to see it in, again for another 20 years. That's what it feels like. Well, the cost was going to be $120 million per plane. How does that stack up versus like a 737 MAX? Uh, yeah, MAX is nowhere near that cost. <laughs> and that, yeah. yeah, and that's what seems... I mean, obviously, it, like the supersonic technology is expensive. Oh, yeah. Get it, but... Sure. That just... Yeah, but that's, that's a hefty price tag. Right, and I think if you're in any sort of new startup... Or, or even a continuance, continuation of a company, and you want to go that direction, you just got to be super lean on everything. And I, I know it sounds outrageous. Uh, well, how can you be super lean on your building this cool-looking airplane? You have to because you can't waste any. Let's say waste any money, but you you don't have any spare money to burn here. We need to. We've got so much invested in the engine technology, on the aircraft technology side, that. You just got to be tight with funds. And, you know, Boeing didn't think it was tight enough. 
that's what appears to have happened. I think you're going to see when you'll see a Seattle Times article about it. I think in the next month or so, which will delineate how this all went down. Because right now there's not a lot of information about it, but you should be seeing something in the next month or so. Well, and so here's my last question for you: Is is this going to spook a lot of these companies in the EVTOL sector? Obviously, a different market than Arion was in, but very similar feel. Like these are startup companies haven't produced a plane yet haven't sold it. I mean, they've got some kind of orders, right? But they haven't been, been paid for many of these. So are these companies going to be spooked? I think the human nature part of it would say no, because if you've already committed funds to it, you are already in your mind knowing that this is going to happen. You've already convinced yourself it's going to happen. So it's hard to back out. Very few investors will back out. Maybe probably some of the most diligent ones that are very really know how to play that. But uh, a lot of times, uh, once they put, even on deposits for that matter, you put a deposit in, you're very reluctant to pull a deposit back and go put a deposit somewhere else. That doesn't happen that often. You made a, a mental, physical commitment to a thing and you don't want it to stop because you've already given your your validation of it. That's a Cialdini principle, yeah. right? That's a Cialdini principle. Yeah. But it's true. Sunk cost. Yeah, yeah. the sunk cost. You mm-hmm. as, as good... Um, economics professors will te- teach you sunk cost is gone, baby. It ain't coming back, right? There's no way. Good good poker players, too. Right, good yeah. poker players. If you start chase, chasing that money. That money is not yours. As soon as it's in that pot, that money it does not does, belong It's to you. gone, right? And you no, can't get it gone. back. And so you have to play your odds based on that money never coming back and look at what the next opportunity is. And do you want to continue to invest more? And everything's a restart. You need to relook at it all the time. And Good investors in aerospace will do that. Uh, people that believe in passion get sidetracked and lose perspective and end up losing a bunch of cash because in aerospace, passion does not matter. It does not make any difference in whether that airplane is going to be created or, or perform like it's supposed to. It has zero to do with it. Zero to do with it. And I, I think we get hung up on some things like that, like, oh, this is the next cool thing. Yeah, maybe, totally, right? So e-hang being one of those things, right? Uh, but it it only matters if it comes to reality. It does what it says it's going to do. That's the only thing that matters. And passion has nothing to do with it. It, uh, it matters that all the details are in place and it's a it's a good product and you can prove it until then. You got to be careful with your money. You really, really do on the investment side. And I and hopefully a lot of EVTOL uh, investors are re-looking at their investments and saying, yeah, there, there are some companies out there, and there are, that are headed in the right direction, that are spending money wisely and are efficiently getting to an aircraft design. That's what you want to see. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Airspace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you're new here, be sure to subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll see you here next week on the Struck Podcast. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radon lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.